0: If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do. Please turn in them to Revelation chapter 11. As you turn there, I'll share a brief recollection from childhood. I remember one particular time, setting, in which I received a shot as a child. It obviously wasn't the first time I have no recollection as to why I was getting a shot, Um, and I I remember specifically that um, I was dumbfounded as to why this was necessary. (laughs) Um, So I was scared. I was anxious. I was worried about what was going to happen, but I distinctly remember that my dad was there, and He told me, in no uncertain terms, that it was going to help. That this shot was going to be good for me. But I wanted to know, and so I asked him, but will it hurt? Right? Dad, is it going to hurt? And he said, honestly, yes, it will. It will hurt. But the hurt's only going to last for a little bit of time. It won't be long before the hurt is gone and it'll be over but I'll be with you the whole time and if you'd like I'll hold your hand the whole way through and so I got the shot and dad was right it hurt it hurt a lot I remember crying because it hurt so bad but it wasn't long before it was over and then we went out for ice cream Church, there are days of tribulation and suffering ahead of us. The book of Revelation promises that. And When those times come, they will hurt. And they'll hurt a lot. But it's only going to be for a time. It won't last forever. And our dad's going to be with us the whole way through. And afterwards... He promises sweet time fellowship with him. This morning, we start into the 11th chapter in our study of the book of Revelation, which is still this interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. Jesus is showing John a vision of tribulation and suffering that must soon take place, he says. Some of it, I think, takes place in the first century. Some of it takes place throughout the church age. But some of it takes place at the end of the church age, right before Jesus returns. Up to this point in this vision in Revelation, the coming tribulation and suffering has been communicated to John by way of unveiling seven seal judgments and six of the seven Trumpet judgments. And midway through the chapter that we're beginning into this morning, chapter 11, that seventh trumpet will be sounded and that will mark the end. But before we get there, we're in this interlude here between the sixth and the seventh trumpet that includes all of chapter 10 that we looked at last week and half of chapter 11. Last week in chapter 10, we were reminded that God is sovereign over this time of tribulation and suffering and judgment that is to come. And that the contents of that little scroll that we saw last week, that the mighty angel was holding, that little scroll contains both good news and not so good news. We recall that the angel told John to eat the scroll and that when he did, it was sweet as honey in his mouth, but it was also bitter in his stomach, signifying to us that the prophecy of this scroll that we'll soon uncover is both sweet for the church and that Jesus wins and all of God's people will be ultimately and finally and completely rescued and ushered into his eternal presence, And all evil and all rebellion will be finally dealt with forever and done away with, as we just read about. And so it will be sweet. But the road to that ultimate victory and that shalom is paved with suffering and persecution and martyrdom for God's people. And so that is bitter. And what we'll see in the first half of chapter 11 will convey much of the very same message to us in a very different way. Chapter 11 is very challenging. I said last week, or a couple weeks ago, when we covered chapter 9, that that was one of the most challenging passages of Scripture. Well, when I was studying this week, I was listening to Bible scholar D.A. Carson, who did a survey on this in a seminary class, and he said specifically that chapter 11 of the book of Revelation is the most highly debated Passage of scripture for the in the history of the church. So I was really excited about this morning. But that is precisely why. Um, I hope I don't let some of you down, but that's precisely why this morning we're only going to cover a very, very small portion of this chapter this morning. Not because I highly value going slowly, but because there's so much here and I don't want us to miss it. And because I want to draw a line of demarcation between those, those doctrines which are secondary, that we're not all going to agree on as to what all this means, while we hold firmly to the primary themes of this book. And so I want to walk that line very carefully this morning. And so let's read by way of context. I'm going to read the whole first half, beginning of verse 1 through verse 14. Church, this is God's Word. For twelve hundred and sixty days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours out from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they wish. And When they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies And their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we thank you for your word. And we know that what we hold in our hands, as we read earlier, is your inspired word, your very breath. All of it is true. And all of it is helpful for the building up of the body of Christ. And so we ask, Father, that you would do that this morning. Not by any word that would just come out of my mouth. But from your word, Lord, would you build your church? Would you edify the body of Christ to be faithful in this generation and in the days to come? We ask this in faith, in Jesus' name, amen. As you can see, there are two distinct and yet related stories in the first half of chapter 11. And we'll only have time this morning to unpack the first of those two stories that's found in verses 1 and 2. In those two verses, we see that John is told to take a measuring rod and measure the temple, the altar, and those who worship there. But not to measure the outer court, which will be trampled by the nations for 42 months. The second story picks up right from there in verse 3 and continues through verse 14. And in, the, in that story, we see these two almost superhero-like witnesses who prophesy for 1,260 days. Now, these two stories are related. They're linked by the time period that is allotted to each of them. In part one that we cover this morning, the nations will trample the holy city for 42 months. If we take each month to be roughly 30 days, That's 1,260 days or three and a half years. In the second story that we'll cover next week, the two witnesses will prophesy for 1,260 days, which is 42 months or three and a half years. And by the way, this is also the same time reference that we saw in the reference from Daniel chapter 12 that we looked at last week when Daniel inquired of the angel, when will the end come? And the angel replied, not until time, times, and half a time. That too could be a reference to three and a half years. Time, one year. Times, two years. That makes three years. And then half a time would be a half of a year. So three and a half years. Now clearly the angel that was responding to Daniel there in Daniel chapter 12 could not have been referring to a literal three and a half years. Because in actuality, it's been a lot longer than a three and a half years since the angel told Daniel that, and the end has not yet come. And so it was figurative in that sense. And so I don't take any of these references to three and a half years, whether it's 42 months or 1,260 days or time, times, and half a time. I don't personally take any of them to reference a literal three, year, three and a half year period of time. Instead, I think we're to interpret them simply as a limited period of time. Limited by whom? Limited by a sovereign God who himself has already determined what that length of time may be. It may be three and a half years. But in our study of apocalyptic literature, I think it's best for us to understand this as a figurative three and a half years of time. But that time period, whatever it is, that's the link between these two stories. 42 months in the first one and 1,260 days in the second one. So let's look this morning at that first story found in the first two verses. John says in verse 1, "Then I was given a measuring rod." That verb was given is another one of these divine passives that we've seen in the book of Revelation. A divine passive that doesn't tell us explicitly what the subject is, but we from context we know it to be God. And so this is God who is giving John this measuring rod. This this means by which to measure these things. And so this, again, this is God at work signifying to us that God is sovereign over all of this that happens. None of it escapes his attention or his design. It's all by his sovereign will. Also, just as we saw last week in chapter 10, John is now no longer just a a passive observer in his own visions as he's been up up to chapter 10. Now he's an active participant. In chapter 10, he ate the scroll. Now in chapter 11, he's given a measuring rod. God gives him a measuring rod and tells him to measure three things. The temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. Then he's also told in verse 2 to not measure the court outside the temple. He's told, leave that out for it is given over to the nations and they, the nations, will trample the holy city for 42 months. As you can imagine, there have been a variety, a veritable plethora, if you will, of interpretations as to what all of this means. And what I want to do is boil this down to three possible, plausible interpretations. And along the way, I'll tell you which one I prefer. Let us hold fast to the conviction that much of what I'm going to try to lay out for you in the explanation of what this means is secondary. I I have a belief as to what this is saying, but we're not all going to agree on that. And that's okay. You do not have to agree with how I approach these two verses and what they mean. That's okay. As long as we hold firm to the primary themes of what this book is teaching us and walk away with a firm grip of how this passage helps to equip the church to persevere through times of uh, of tribulation. So, three possible interpretations. The first, I'm going to call the full preterist view. Now, we've talked about the preterist position already. The preterist typically will argue for a first century fulfillment of much of the prophecy that we see in the book of Revelation. And for that reason, they will see that this is referring to the actual temple that is standing in Jerusalem in the first century. Now, how do they come to that conclusion? Well, the preterist will say that John's revelation here was written prior to A.D. 70 when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. And so, According to this view, this temple that John is told to measure here in this vision in chapter 11 is the actual temple in Jerusalem that was standing prior to A.D. 70. In that case, the outer court would be the outer court of the Gentiles, which was what that temple stood for in that day. And that would be referring to the time in which the nations, the the, the Gentiles, would literally trample the city and destroy both it and the temple. So They would see that these verses are referring to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem, which occurred historically in A.D. 70. My primary problem that I have with that particular interpretation is that I believe the most likely date for the writing of this book is not prior to A.D. 70, but in the A.D. 90s. During the reign of the emperor Domitian, some 20-odd years after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Quickly, three main reasons why I believe this. First of all, Irenaeus pretty much told us. Irenaeus was a 2nd century bishop of Lyon. He wrote a book called Against Heresies. It was apologetic of his day. He wrote that in AD 180, so in the 2nd century. And in that book, he writes that the apocalypse was given to the Apostle John near the end of the reign of Domitian, which we know from historical accounts was during the A.D. 90s. That is the very earliest recorded testimony of when John wrote this book. And for that reason, we must must give it its due credibility. But secondly, Christian persecution, which is recorded for us, particularly in chapters 2 and 3, as Jesus dictates these letters to the churches in Asia Minor during this time, Christian persecution was happening during the reign of Domitian that fits with the persecution that we see described in those letters. Now, it wasn't as widespread as the persecution that occurred under Emperor Nero prior to AD 70, but it certainly fits the description that we see from Jesus in those letters. But thirdly, one of those letters in chapter 3 is written to the city of Laodicea. And Laodicea in that letter in chapter 3 is described to us as a very wealthy and economically strong city. Well, other historical accounts tell us that there was a great earthquake that destroyed Laodicea in AD 61. And so if Revelation was written prior to AD 70, that simply would not have left enough time for that city to have recovered from that and to be wealthy and economic, economically strong once again. So again, I'm arguing for a date of writing somewhere in the mid-90s, right at the, right at the end of the first century, which means the temple's no more. The temple's not there. It's already been destroyed, and so John couldn't have been referring to that temple when he says measure the temple others while agreeing that perhaps the temple that John is uh, talking about here is a literal physical temple but disagreeing with the full preterist position that it's referring to the first century temple others instead understand this to be referring to a physical and literal and yet future temple that is rebuilt le- later on in Jerusalem in the end times. This is known as the dispensational futurist interpretation. It's a very popular interpretation. So popular that it has is, it is kind of made the jump into popular culture. And there have been many movies and many books that have been published uh, based on this particular interpretation of the end times. Dispensationals, like the full preterists will understand that the temple reference here is to a literal temple, a physical temple, but they will disagree that it's the first century temple. They will say this is a temple that will one day be rebuilt. Some will say that it's rebuilt during the tribulation time, leading up to the tribulation time. Others will say that it's built during a millennial reign of Christ, a thousand-year reign of Christ that occurs after Jesus returns. They will say further that those who worship in the temple, what John refers to as those who worship there, that they must be the Jews who come to faith in Jesus Christ during that future tribulation. That these would be, in their estimation, the 144,000 of chapter 7. And then the Gentiles of the outer court, who will overrun the holy city of Jerusalem, they do this for a literal forty-two month period of time to a literal city of Jerusalem. My disagreement with this particular uh, viewpoint is for two primary reasons. First of all, I, I find it I find it very confu- concerning. Uh, uh, first of all, that this dependence on a literal interpretation of nearly every vision that we see, not only in this passage, but and the rest of the book of Revelation often misses or in some cases ignores some of the symbolic meaning that apocalyptic literature is meant to unveil for us. And so it misses much of that simply by leaning always on a literal interpretation of everything that we see here. So I think you missed some of that. Secondly, the dispensational interpretation is buttressed by two In my estimation, don't throw rocks, in my estimation, false assumptions. The first is that there is a fundamental difference in how God interacts with ethnic, physical Israel and how God interacts with the New Testament church. According to this viewpoint, people in the New Testament are saved only by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We would all affirm that. Absolutely, we agree with that. But this viewpoint further suggests that people from a Jewish ethnicity are saved simply by virtue of them being Jews. Rather than understanding the church to be the New Testament expression of the people of God and therefore the rightful heirs of the Old Testament promises to the people of God, they will find that the Old Testament promises to Israel are a promise to the nation and the physical Israel and that those are still intact for a physical national Israel one day. And I find that theological assumption to be flawed for a variety of reasons. But the second flawed assumption of this particular viewpoint, or at least their eschatology, is the belief in a pre-tribulational rapture. In our study of Revelation, we're right in the middle of what we might call the tribulation. But the dispensational viewpoint will argue that the church isn't here. The church was raptured back in chapter 4. Now, if you recall, when we went through chapter 4, we didn't see any reference to the rapture there. There is no reference to the rapture in chapter 4. In fact, there's no reference to the rapture at all in the entire book of Revelation, which by itself is odd, as Revelation is, at least in part, telling us how the world ends. Now, the rapture is dealt with in Paul's letter, first letter to the Thessalonians. But where it falls in the timeline of what is occurring in Revelation, we're left to wonder. But the dispensational interpreter will place it at chapter 4, before any of this tribulation starts. Which is very nice, right? It's very reassuring because it doesn't mean that we'll be here for any of this hard stuff. But I just simply don't find in Scripture sufficient evidence that it should be placed prior to any of this bad stuff happening. We will talk about the rapture later in our study of Revelation as I believe in the timeline that it occurs later. But the problem here is that if you place the rapture there that means that the church isn't present for any of the stuff that we've been talking about for the last several weeks. It's not present for the seals, not present for the trumpets, it's not present for the bowls, any of this stuff. And that's going to skew one's interpretation of what all of this other stuff is referring to. And because I find that to be a false assumption, I must reject that viewpoint of this particular passage as referring to some kind of literal rebuilt temple that will be rebuilt sometime in the future. So that leaves us, or it leaves me, with one final interpretation that I think is most convincing. I'll call this a modified futurist and a partial preterist viewpoint that eclectic enough for you so according to this view both the altar the, the the temple itself and those who worship there are all pictures of the new testament church since the physical temple in jerusalem according to our dating of this book is gone at this point john must be referring to something else when he talks about the temple Now, our Old Testament background for this passage, which is very important for us to look at, there are more allusions to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation than there are in any other New Testament book. Not necessarily quotations, but allusions that form a background that needs to inform how we interpret the text. And the Old Testament background for this particular passage is Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel, specifically chapters 40, 41, 42, and into 43 and there Ezekiel records a vision in which a man measures the temple. Now the temple that is described in Ezekiel's prophecy honestly bears no resemblance to the temple of the first century of Jesus's day. It doesn't look at all like that. And so Ezekiel is prophesying about another temple, but I would argue that he's not prophesying about a future literal physical temple that is rebuilt one day but instead a spiritual heavenly temple this seems to be the pattern that we see throughout the book of revelation when it talks about the temple of god in these visions commentator gk Beale writes this without exception the word temple the greek naos elsewhere in revelation refers not to a literal or historical temple but either To the heavenly temple of the present or to the temple of God's presence dominating the new age of the future. In other words, as followers of Jesus Christ, as those who have come to faith in Jesus and his finished work on the cross as our only hope to be rescued from the judgment that we all deserve because of our rebellion against God, we who profess faith in Jesus Christ are members of God's temple, his holy heavenly temple. And while we remain here on a physical earth today, we are said biblically to be in the temple of God. And so the temple of God that John refers to here then is a reference to the church. We have, of course, many New Testament examples of the church being referred to as the temple of God. Paul writes to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 3 verses 16 and 17, and says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. He's talking to the church in Corinth. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, as he's writing to the mostly Gentile church in Ephesus, he says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, But now you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place, which is another word for temple, for God by the Spirit. Apostle Peter also writes in 1 Peter 2 verse 5, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. In other words, a temple. To be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So the idea of chapter 11 of Revelation is that the whole community of God's people is in a spiritual heavenly temple in which God's presence dwells. And this is the temple, the quote-unquote, the temple of God that John is told to measure. So he's measuring the church. The altar that he measures also refers to the church, specifically referring to the church as the church sacrifices for God. Like we just read from 1 Peter, that we are a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The individuals who are worshiping there in the temple are individual Christians who are also spoken of in the New Testament as the temple of God. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Referring to individual believers, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God, so therefore you are not your own. So it's it's my opinion that the temple of God here, the altar, and those who worship there are all pictures of the church symbolically. And John is told to measure them. Now, what is the significance of John being told to measure these three things? Well, obviously, it's not because he needed to know how large they were, or that God needed to know how large they were. God is giving John an object lesson here. This is often what God does. Uh, and and what he's recorded as doing with the prophets of old in in the Old Testament, the prophets of Israel, before they were given the prophecy itself. They were told to go and perform some kind of strange task that then highlights the prophecy itself. That's why we have in Ezekiel chapter 12, the prophet Ezekiel who's told to dig a hole through the wall of the city and pull his luggage out through the hole that he digs in the wall of the city. It's not because he needed his baggage. It's because that was teaching the people that were hearing his prophecy what it was going to be like to escape from this city in that time. That's also why we have in Isaiah chapter 20. We, see, we hear God telling Isaiah to do something really crazy, really out of, out of the ordinary. He tells Isaiah to go and prophesy barefoot and naked for three years. Go look it up, Isaiah chapter 20. He's told to prophesy naked and barefoot for three years. Why in the world? Well, because this was going to tell the people, give the people an inclination as to what it will be like to be in exile. He was prophesying about the coming exile, and so it was highlighting that prophecy. Same thing's happening here. God has John take his measuring rod, measure the temple, measure the altar, measure those who worship there, not because he needed to know how large they were, but because this was an object lesson drawing attention to the prophecy. And what was the prophecy? The prophecy is that which is to come. It's the contents of the little scroll that we read about from chapter 10 that we're going to uncover beginning in in the second half of chapter 11. It's The contents of that scroll which he ate in chapter 10, that the end will be both sweet and bitter. And the sweetness of the prophecy is portrayed... In the measuring of these three things. Well, how does the measuring of these three, three things portray the sweetness of the prophecy to come? Well, measuring was symbolic of ownership. You measured that which you owned by way of, uh, it was a sign that you owned it. Again, the background here is Ezekiel verse chapter 40 and following. where We're told about this man that measures the temple. And it's very elaborate. Go back, and, go back and read those chapters, 40, 41, and 42, and into 43. He measures everything. He measures every gate of the temple. He measures every court of the temple. He measures every, every wall of the temple. And it's very elaborate, and it goes into much detail about the measurements of the temple. And the point is that this measuring activity symbolized God's ownership and God's protection of his people. That he was present with his people and that they belonged to him. We're also going to see this at the very end of of the book of Revelation. When the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven to earth in chapter 21, we'll see another guy with a measuring rod. And he's going to measure the gates of that city. And he's going to measure the walls of that city. Not so that we know how large it is, but as a symbol that God owns it and protects it and his everlasting presence is there with it. That's what it means. That's the sweet part of this prophecy. That we, the church of Jesus Christ, that we have been purchased by Christ's blood. And we are God's people. And he owns us. We're his, we, we belong to Him, and as His people, He protects us. And so no matter how bad it gets, and it's going to get really bad, as we'll see. But no matter how bad it gets, yet God is with us. We are His, and He is our God he will never leave us or forsake us and he will spiritually protect us from the enemy's attack the enemy the unbelieving world the beast, the antichrist they will attack us they will attack the church and they will bring suffering and persecution on the church and even death but through it all God will spiritually protect his own. And so this is not unlike the picture that we saw in chapter 7 of the 144,000 sealed servants of God. We understood that as well to be a picture of the church. Those who had the seal of God on their forehead, those seals were a sign of God's ownership and protection of his own. Just as this measuring signifies for us God's ownership protection of his own but as we see here in this story not not everyone is measured right not everyone is measured in this scene John is told in verse 2 to not measure those in the outer court don't measure it for the outer court is given over to the nations the Gentiles and they the Gentiles the nations were told will trample the holy city For 42 months so what's going on here well if our interpretation is correct and the measuring is symbolic of god's protection then apparently there are some who are not protected well who are they well i'm sure it's no surprise to you that there are a variety of interpretations about who are in the outer court as well so who's in the outer court of the temple some understand these to be unbelievers that are in the outer court And that would certainly ring true with the rest of what we know about Scripture because unbelievers most definitely will not be spiritually protected in the judgment and tribulation to come. Others say that this is the apostate church. In other words, even though they're physically present with the church and physically physically present in the church, that they're not genuine believers in Jesus Christ, that they are pretend followers. Scripture tells us about these. And and so these are the pretend believers, the pretend Christians, which would make them unbelievers. And again, obviously, unbelievers and the judgment will not be spiritually protected. And so that would make sense. So these these are very plausible explanations. But personally, I'm not convinced that those who are in the outer court in this vision are unbelievers. If you think about the temple... And how the temple is described the outer court was known as the court of gentiles and they weren't allowed to go into the inner courts of the israelites they were forbidden from going there there was a dividing wall that said don't go beyond this but the whole point of having an outer court in the jewish temple was that the gentiles who went there were converts to judaism They were believers in Yahweh, and they were coming to the outer court to worship. They just weren't allowed to go into the inner courts, but they were believers in Yahweh, and so I find it hard in this vision to come to grips that these are unbelievers in the outer court, besides the fact that Paul tells us in Ephesians that Christ's sacrifice at Calvary broke down the the dividing wall of hostility between Gentiles and Jews, And so there is no more outer court of the Gentiles in Ezekiel's spiritual heavenly temple. Now certainly that outer court in John's vision here eventually is filled with unbelievers, the nations, as they trample the holy city. But I'm not convinced that it's unbelievers who are already there in this vision. So it's my opinion. Again, it's not not just my opinion. Several commentators affirm this viewpoint as well, that those in the outer court in this particular vision are also Christians. It's another picture of the church. It's a different picture of the church. So we've got the picture of the church measured, right? And that symbolizes to us God's protection, God's protection of his people. And that is the sweet part of the little scroll. That that, that is the sweetness in our mouth that God protects his own spiritually through the tribulation. But then we've got the picture of the church in the outer court. And it's a picture of the church exposed to the enemy. Vulnerable to the enemy's attack and the enemy's persecution of the church. And vulnerable even to martyrdom. And this is the part of the little scroll that is bitter in our stomach these are believers in the outer court they're worshipers of the one true god but they are given over to the nations and here i understand the word nations here to refer not simply to the gentiles but to the unbelieving world that which revelation refers to elsewhere as the those who dwell on the earth the earth dwellers the the unbelievers They're given over to the enemies of the cross and they will trample the holy city, which includes everything, the whole church, for 42 months. That is the bitter taste of the little scroll. The 42 months in which the holy city will be trampled by the nations will tie into the second story that we see in this first half of the chapter that we'll cover next week in which John sees two witnesses, and the two witnesses will prophesy for 1,260 days, which is also 42 months. And like we, we said earlier, whatever those three and a half years are meant to represent, whether they, we understand them to be symbolic or literal, regardless, they represent a limited period of time, a relatively short period of time. And what a kindness from our God. If you consider what is happening in these judgments and tribulation, what a kindness to make them short. Whatever suffering and persecution he intends for his church, it will only be for a limited period of time. It will not last forever. And compared to the sweetness of everlasting joy with God in heaven, this will be a relatively short period of suffering and tribulation. So, what I believe we have in these first two verses of chapter 11 is a picture of the church going through the tribulation, spiritually protected by God because of our faith in Jesus Christ, and yet also physically vulnerable to attack and persecution and even martyrdom at the hands of these earth dwellers and the forces of evil. And this is certainly in keeping with the theme that we've returned to often in the book of Revelation that while we will experience tribulation and suffering, God will spiritually protect his children through that. Even if it means martyrdom, God will protect us spiritually through it all. If we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ as our only hope to be rescued from the judgment that we deserve because of our rebellion against God, if we've if we placed our hope in Christ alone, then we've got the seal of God on our foreheads signifying that he owns us we're his and we have been figuratively measured by god marked out as his own and he will spiritually protect us and cause our faith to persevere through whatever trials and persecutions the road ahead may lie for us in his commentary on Revelation, Tom Schreiner provides these concluding thoughts that I think are very good, and I'll just read them. These two verses summarize the glory and the agony of existence in this present world, and I would say, and in the world to come. On the one hand, believers are protected and guarded by God. Nothing can separate us from, the, from God's love in Christ Jesus, as Paul says, The good shepherd always tends his sheep and never leaves them or forsakes them. On the other hand, those who belong to Jesus Christ will experience discrimination and hatred and even death. Life in this world is not easy, but it is marked by suffering, distress, and opposition. And yet, God is with us, guarding, guiding, nourishing, and strengthening until the end. When the churches of the first century in Asia Minor received their copy of John's Revelation and they got to this part of the story, they would have been greatly encouraged. They would have seen their current suffering and persecution at the hands of the world around them through the lens of eternity. And that their persecution and suffering was but a shadow of the persecution and suffering and tribulation that was to come for them and for us. But that no matter how bad it got and how much they suffered, God was with them and would see them through it to the sweetness of the eternal state that awaits us all. They would have been greatly encouraged to face their current suffering with greater patience and hope. They would have been encouraged by this reminder of God's presence is with them, tabernacling with them in those hard days. Their faith in Jesus would have been strengthened and their confidence in a sovereign God would have been reinforced. And church, I pray these same things for us, that in seeing that the Lord has taken a measuring rod and has measured us out who know him in a saving way as his own, signifying that we belong to him, that we're his, and he'll never leave us or forsake us, that we may be encouraged by that as well, to face everything that the Lord may have in our path, every suffering, every tribulation of this time and the time to come with great patience and hope because we know the end that we may be encouraged by the confidence that God is with us, tabernacling with us in this spiritual temple today. And may our faith in Jesus be strengthened by this and our confidence in His sovereign God reinforced. I want to close with a reading from Romans chapter 8 where the Apostle Paul echoes this same sentiment That if we belong to the Lord, though we may face many, many trials, spiritually nothing can touch us. I'm going to read just beginning in verse verse 28 of chapter 8 and just read through this. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. God's sovereign. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Praise the God that by faith in Jesus' finished work on the cross, He has measured us and marked us out as his own through faith in his son. Some of you are not marked out. You're still part of the nations. Those that Revelation refers to as earth dwellers. Those who are unbelievers. And if that describes you, it doesn't matter how long you've been in church. Your only hope is to throw your faith, your trust, in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross as your only hope. Not to trust in your attempts to be a good person, not to trust in your perfect attendance at church or anything that you have done in your life or will do in your life, but to throw yourself at the foot of the cross and to trust in Christ alone to rescue you through humble faith and repentance of your sins. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for this passage of Scripture that reminds us that this world that, like us, is irreparably stained with sin will only last for a time. And the time in which it lasts is short Compared to eternity. And in your sovereign wisdom, you have made a way for sinful people like us to be reconciled to you. And it wasn't by ignoring our sin or sweeping our sin under a rug, but it was by sending your Son, Jesus Christ, Son of God. To pay the price for our sin, fully satisfying judgment for sin for us. Father, on behalf of those whom you have walked across the line of faith and led them into a trusting relationship with you through your Son Jesus Christ, we want to say thank you. We want to say thank you so much for this word that reminds us that there's a home awaiting for us. We want to say thank you, Father, that though there are tribulation and suffering in our day, and though that tribulation, according to your word, will get worse and worse, you will spiritually protect those whom you've sealed and marked out as your own. By no virtue in ourselves, but by the virtue of Jesus Christ crucified and risen on our behalf thank you may the hope of that good news and the confidence in your sovereignty through it all strengthen our faith and our hope in jesus and the road that you've mapped out for us to walk and god for those that are in this room and within our hearing and within our homes and our workplaces and our neighborhoods who don't have a saving relationship with you through your son, Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that you would bring them to the end of themselves and make clear to them the hopelessness and the folly of trying to make themselves good enough for you. And reveal to them the beauty of Christ and the significance of his sacrifice. Give them the faith, Father, to trust in Christ alone as their only hope. Father, thank you for this word. May you use it to strengthen us, your bride, until you bring us home. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.